Daily life can bombard us with worries. Questions of what if swirl around our hearts and minds and leave us distracted and unsure of tomorrow. But instead of asking what if out of worry and anxiety for the future, God invites us to ask the question, what if with expectancy and faith in Him? The God of the universe can move mountains and place stars in the sky. And so today, let's ask, what if? Well, hey, we're going to dive into God's Word this morning, and uh, we've been in this little series. We're kind of taking a look at this question uh, throughout the month of September. It is September, right? Fall is in the air. Pumpkin spice lattes are flowing. Anyone have a pumpkin spice latte yet? Come on, you can own up to it. It's okay. Be up. Yeah, there you go. Right? Uh, the, the ducks are winning. The huskies are losing. Even the beavers are 2-0, and o, guys. It's awesome. It's the fall. I love the fall. But we're taking a, a little season uh, in this, this season to just kind of answer this question. And it's not a question that, um, you know, that maybe you ask out loud, as we discussed last week. It's uh, one of those questions that we certainly ponder. And I think at different times and in different seasons, maybe when we're uh, kind of going through a tough time, or maybe we're kind of being a little bit reflective. And uh, we talked about this last week, that you can stand in the present and look back. And oftentimes when you look back, you ask those kind of what if I had chosen a different path? What if I had made a different decision? And oftentimes we can look back and look back with a sense of regret, right, at what kind of could be, should be, or would have been, right, if we had maybe done something different. And so it can tend to be a little bit negative. And, and then if you're standing in the present and you start to think about the future, and we talked about this last week, my kids moved back to the East Coast and they're pursuing their dreams and all that, but the closer and closer they got to it, they started to ask those, well, what if I fail? And what if it doesn't work out the way I think it's gonna work out? And what if my roommates don't like me? And, and in many respects, those of us in life, and I think at different seasons and different stages, we can look back, and it tends to be kind of maybe a, a negative, regretful kind of look back when we think of what if. And it can also be as we look forward that we maybe look forward with fear or uh, kind of a worst case scenario type mindset. But as we started exploring this idea of what if in the kingdom of God, what we realized is that God and his what ifs move us from places of limitation to places of possibility, don't they? They move us from places of fear to places of faith because that's how God works. And so God wants us to trust him and to put faith in him and to rely upon him and to step into the future with a sense of confidence, anticipation, and expectation because God's at work. And so we explored this idea last week that God, uh, what if we could live with certainty in the midst of uncertainty? And if the last year, 18 months have taught us anything is that life is uncertain, right? Anybody have it figured out? Please give me your number, right? But, but life is uncertain. It's fragile. It's volatile or it's vulnerable, right? And, and we recognize that, man, in the midst of all of the uncertainty going around us, how can you and I as followers of Jesus Christ live with a sense of certainty? How can we be certain? And we discovered last week that we'll we're chosen by God. We're his kids. We're, he loves us. He walks with us. And he gives us, he is our living hope, as we discovered last week. And so this week, I want us to kind of explore another question. And it's simply this. What if God used your limitation, your weakness, your inability to actually accomplish his purposes? 
Now I realize that kind of flies in the face of kind of the culture in which we live in because we live in a just do it culture, don't we? We live in a dare to dream, go after it, you can do it, right? Kind of, that's kind of the culture that we live in. But all of us face limitations and weaknesses. And what if, in the face of those weaknesses, in the face of those limitations, some of them they're internal, some of them are external, what if God could use them to actually accomplish his possibilities, his purpose in and through our lives? Now, I have a, I have a confession to make, and uh, I gotta work at this. This is one of those moments, guys. I know it's early on in our journey together, so it's better that I just get it out right now. And so, I have a favorite kind of movie and it's, it's those Disney movies, you know, the feel-good ones where like there's the down and outer, the misfit group of kids, and they dare to dream and they overcome. And, uh, and then they end up like, you know, winning the championship, all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else in the room? I know you look at me and think that I might be into kind of, you know, Braveheart or some of the, you know, I get it. I understand. I get it. I get it. You know, freedom! But I'm actually into those feel-good movies. And I'm the only one in my home that's actually into those feel-good movies. You know the movies I'm talking about? The Invincibles, Sandlot, anybody? Come on, what about Rudy? Rudy, 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 right? What about, and here's my all-time favorite. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. There you go, The Mighty Ducks. Come on, does anybody else love The Mighty Ducks? I love the Mighty Ducks. It's, and, and then there was the Mighty Ducks, the first one, and then there was the Mighty Ducks, the second one, and then Disney Plus comes out with an episode or 10 episodes of the Mighty Ducks. Was nobody, nobody else excited like I'm excited? I mean, I was great. I mean, you know, it was Thursday at midnight, and I'm, I'm waiting for the next episode, because that's what Disney does. It teases you. You have to wait to watch it every week. You know, I'm not one of those binge-watcher people, you know? And so every week, I'd sit down to watch the Disney movies, and uh, I'm the, or the Disney episode of Mighty Ducks, and I'm the only one that's watching it, you know? And you guys know that one of those most famous scenes, I mean, they have to score a goal. They call the team together on the side of the ice rink, and the coach gives the play, and you don't know what it is. But then they form this weird kind of formation. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The flying V. And they skate. Now remember, these were a ragtag group of misfits who couldn't even skate, and they're now in the championship game, and they're doing the flying V. And I had to wait to episode 10 to understand to see the flying V. And I'm downstairs, my wife and kids are upstairs doing I don't know what. This is the most important thing going on in our house. And the flying V is happening, and I'm screaming at the TV going, they're doing the flying V! And my wife is upstairs laughing at me, and... Okay, I got a little exaggerated there. You can tell I love that movie, don't you? <laughs> but I just love those movies, those dare-to-dream mo- movies, this ragtag group of misfits who can't even skate, but there's something that they dare to dream, and they come together uh, in spite of their limitations, in spite of their weaknesses, and they end up accomplishing something great. And there's something inside every single one of us that dreams and hopes and loves and lives for those kinds of moments, isn't there? Because all of us have hopes and dreams, don't we? We all have things that we wish would happen or we hope would happen in our lives. And when you were younger, 
you know, you hoped, you dreamed about, man, I'm going to be a famous baseball player, or I'm going to be president, or I'm going to be a princess, or I'm going to be a famous singer. In fact, some of you, based on your song time in the bathroom, still think you're going to be a famous singer, right? <laughs> Just watch the first week of American Idol every season, right? We all had hopes and dreams. But as we grow and we get older, we realize that, man, we bump into limitations, don't we? We realize our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own inability to accomplish those things, and we adjust our dreams. And it's not that we don't stop dreaming, because God created us to dream, to believe, but we adjust our dreams because we bump into limitations. And what happens and oftentimes is that we set up then a scenario because the limitation is that thing that's causing me or limiting me to not be able to accomplish my hope or my dream. And, and we can oftentimes view limitations then as something that's negative, something that resists us, something that gets in our way to where we feel we're supposed to be. And it's why in culture we, we don't, you know, our culture doesn't kind of like limitations. We live in a culture where it's kind of this freedom from and this freedom to do whatever I want to do with whomever I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, don't tell me no. Because we live in a culture that, man, we don't want to be limited. But one of the things that we're discovering in the culture in which we live is that limitations are actually healthy and good. Screen time, parents? You've been there, right? If you've got kids or you're raising kids, all of a sudden, since 2007, we're all having to figure out how to, quote unquote, limit screen time. Did you know that the average American actually spends 5.4 hours a day on their phone? Two and a half of those hours are spent on social media. Man, life improvement might just be, man, maybe I'm going to spend a little less time on social media, right? But what we realize and what culture and researchers, scientists, universities who are doing all the research around this is what they're discovering is that if you can put limits on some of that kind of stuff, it actually produces healthier human beings, by not having any limitations, there's kind of uh, physical unhealth, mental unhealth, depression, discouragement, suicide. All of the stats, all of the research is showing that by not having limits in place in some of those areas, it's creating unhealth. So limits are actually good for us. There's a thing called um, the paralysis of choice. Any of you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a book, you know? Just give me like a chicken burger with some fries. Can we just do that? How many of you have just kind of closed and say, do you have like just chicken burger with fries or something like that, right? Why? Because we have this paralysis of choice. Too many choices without limitation and what ends up happening is I'm paralyzed. I won't move or do anything. There's decision fatigue in our culture. The average person, believe it or not, makes 35,000 decisions a day. Little decisions, big decisions, what to wear, what to eat, where to go, right? And if you're like me, you know, it's like what to wear, you know, that's like, you know, I'm, you notice what I'm doing there? I'm putting it on me, not on my wife, right? What do I wear, right? Those are big decisions, right? And we realize that, man, we have in our culture, right, all kinds of things that teach us that limits are actually good for us. 
But my question this morning, and the question that we're pondering, is is it possible that God actually would use our limitations, our weaknesses, our frailties, our I can't do it, to accomplish his purpose? There's this beautiful story. It's found in Luke chapter five. And if you know anything about Peter, Peter was a fisherman. Uh, his daddy was a fisherman, and his granddaddy was a fisherman, right? It just He was in the family business. And Jesus kind of shows up and gets in his boat, and they push out a little bit, and Jesus is teaching the crowd. And then Jesus turns to Peter and a few of his friends, and he says, push out a little bit deeper, and let's go catch some fish. Now, of course, it's the wrong time of the day to catch fish because they typically fished at night. And so Peter turns to Jesus and said, hey, listen, we've been out fishing all night, and we haven't caught anything. Now, Peter's the expert in this situation. And, and there, there's a similar story that happens in John 21 after Peter has denied Jesus and Jesus comes to restore Peter and he's walking along the, the coastline and he doesn't, Peter doesn't recognize it's Jesus and Jesus shouts out, hey, have you caught any fish? And he goes, like, no, we've been fishing all night, haven't caught a single thing. And he says, well, take your nets and cast them in the other side. And you guys all know the story. It happened in Luke 5. It happened in John 21. That on the other side of the boat, they catch so many fish that they have to call their friends over in another boat to stuff the boats full of fish. And we always hear that story and we go, man, that's awesome. Look at the miracle that Jesus did. And what we miss is the limitation that they first experienced on the other side of the boat that set up the miracle that they would then experience. And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that that oftentimes in our lives, we can look at limitations, we can look at weaknesses, we can look at our shortcomings and go, man, that, that thing is actually stopping me from accomplishing some things in my life. And I want to pose the question this morning, is it possible that those weaknesses, those limitations, those frailties are actually the setup for God to accomplish his purpose? Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses eight and nine, and this is Peter, or sorry, Paul, being really vulnerable about some things that are going on in his own personal life. He had a weakness. We don't know what it is. We don't know what what, uh, Paul was even talking about specifically, but it says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that that it should leave me, but God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see what Paul's doing there? Paul is talking about a weakness in his world, in his life, a limitation, a restriction, something that he can't do in his own strength. And yet what he says is that it's in that place that God's power, that God's ability to accomplish is actually made perfect, or another way of saying that is made complete. In other words, Paul has this weakness, and it's in this space of frailty, and I can't do it, and it's, it's a weakness, it's a limitation, it's a restriction. It's in that place that God's actually working and showing his power and his ability to accomplish the very thing that he wants to accomplish through Paul. And here's what's so amazing. It's not just that it's a truth that Paul acknowledges and recognizes. Look what he says. He goes on and he says this. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. 
Now, we don't talk much about boasting in church, do we? Because as parents, we tend to go, you know, with our kids, you know, they hit like a, you know, three-run home, home run, you know, walk off and, you know, or score three goals or whatever the case might be. And we kind of, hey, 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 don't boast, don't brag, you know, be humble, right? All those kinds of things, right? But here's Paul actually saying, I will boast. I'm going to brag about something. Do you notice what he's bragging about, though? He's bragging about his weakness, his limitation, his inability. Now, oftentimes, we hear this word boast, and, and we don't really understand what it means in our culture. It, you know, oh, yeah, don't brag, right? You know, it's kind of a bragging thing. And in some, sorry, some regards, it is. But originally, a boast was actually a warfare, a warfare term. It was something that a king or a commander, as he's riding on his horse in front of his army, uh, and he's trying to kind of uh, encourage or strengthen his army to run into battle, run into what is probably going to be sure and certain death. If you've watched Braveheart, there's that reference again. Braveheart, you know, William Wallace, he's on his horse, and he's wearing his kilt, and he's got his face all painted blue, you know. You guys know the scene, right? And he goes, sons of Scotland! Every man dies, but not every man really lives, right? Our hands are strong and our spears are sharp. Charge, right? What is he trying to do? He's trying to endue his, his army with courage to go into the fight. And this is what a boast actually is. It's a, a boast was something that you drew courage from so that you might face the battle. Now, isn't that interesting? Because what, what Paul says is he says, I'm not going to boast in myself. I'm not going to boast in my ability. I'm not going to boast in I can do this. I'm going to boast in my weakness. Why? Because it's in my weakness that I discover the perfect power and strength of God to accomplish his purpose through me. Look, look what it says in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, because boasting actually is a really interesting study throughout the Bible. It's not the first time that we see it in this passage, because in Jeremiah 9, 23, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the, or the rich boast in their riches. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. He's just saying, don't boast in those things. Don't put your confidence on those things. Don't allow those things for the, the, to be the reason why you're overcoming. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone. That they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice to the righteous um, and righteousness to the earth. And that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so way back in the Old Testament, the same message was being communicated to the people of God. Don't boast in your strength. Don't boast in your power and your riches and your wisdom. But let your boast, let your confidence come from and be in the Lord. Paul picked up on it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, I'm only going to boast in one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so at an emotional or a psychological level, a boast is really about identity. Where do you draw your confidence from? That limitation, that weakness, that kind of thing that you've bumped into, all of a sudden it confronts us 
as to where we draw our confidence from. And what Paul is teaching us, what Jeremiah is teaching us, that your confidence in the face of your limitation, in the face of your weakness, in the face of your inability, your confidence ought to be in the Lord and the Lord himself. Him alone. Everything else we have is a gift. Everything else we have can be taken away in an instant, but not so with the Lord. And so we're encouraged that we should be those who put confidence in the Lord. You can understand why this message, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, the message of not boasting in ourselves, but in our weakness and in the cross of Christ would be so countercultural. Because we live in a just do it culture. We live in a dare to dream, you can do it, right? We, we live in a culture, and, and once again, I do believe that God has gifted us and talented and there's all of these things, but those things are secondary to where our confidence comes from. Our confidence is in the Lord. And so, in the face of your weakness, in the face of that limitation, is it possible that the Lord is actually asking you not to put confidence in self, but using it as an opportunity to put confidence in him? There's this beautiful story. It's found in the Old Testament. It's, by a, it's about a guy by the name of Abram. And later on, Abram would have his name changed to Abraham. You know Abraham in the Old Testament. You know that song? If you grew up in church, come on, sing it with me. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just... That's awesome. Okay, we're going, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Some of you guys really got into it, you know? You need to be serving in kids' ministry, I'm telling you. But, but isn't it true? We, we, you know, we know that song, and, and if you're not familiar with church, um, you're now considering us all weird. That's okay. We love Jesus. <laughs> but, but there's this beautiful story in the Old Testament about a guy by the name of Abram. And in, Abram's nobody special. He's a pagan kind of just doing life, and the Lord kind of um, intervenes in his life and in his world, and he says, Abram, I want you to leave the nation and the place where you live. I want you to leave your father and your, your, your family, and I want you to follow me. Well, where are we going, God? Just follow me. Really? That's what I got to do? Yes. Let me make you a couple of promises. Number one, I'm going to make your name great. Number two, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you, which is kind of ironic because even though his name is Exalted Father, that's what his name means, he can't have any kids. And so number three, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. And so there's this beautiful setup that happens in chapter 12. Some 13 years take place between chapter 12 and chapter 15. And during that time, we see God fulfilling his promises, excuse me, to Abraham. He blesses him, he grows in prosperity, he grows in influence, uh, Lot makes some questionable life choices, and Abraham goes after him and chases him down and rescues him. There's a couple of kings that rise up against him, and God protects him, and he overwhelms and overcomes and defeats these kings. And then Melchizedek, who also was this follower, kind of mystical follower of uh, God, who is this person, but he blesses him and uh, tries to give him all of this kind of stuff. And Abraham, at the end of chapter 14, says, no, no, no. Keep that stuff lest you think it's you that has blessed me and made me famous. It's the Lord that will do and will answer his promises. And I want you to notice something. God started the relationship. This is hundreds of years before the law. God started the relationship with Abraham through promises. 
God made a promise. Well, what happens at the start of chapter 15, some 13 years later, and you would imagine if God made you a promise, there was one promise that hadn't been fulfilled. And that was Abram, who couldn't have any kids, would have some kids. And Abram's in his tent, and this is the scene that's happening in uh, Genesis chapter 15. He's hanging out in his tent, and he's probably kind of bandaging up his wounds from a previous fight, and he's kind of tired from the sun, you know, kind of the sun beating down on him and the day that he's had, and he's got one of those moments where he's just in a dark place. Anybody ever been in a dark place? You just feel crowded in. Well, this is where Abram's at. He's in this dark place, and he's pondering the promise that God made him. God, you made me a promise hasn't come to pass. It's been 13 years. He's in his late 80s at this point. It feels like that's never going to happen. And God enters into the space. And this is what he says. He says, soon after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Now remember, God's already given him all kinds of blessings and prosperity, and he's protected him, defeated the enemy. Now, he has amazing influence. But, but all of that's nothing. What can you give me? I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Skip down to verse five. Then he took him outside. Remember, he's in this dark place. He's in this limited place. He's in this tent And God takes him outside and says, look up to the sky, Abram, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And this is the most powerful response that the Lord is looking from every single one of us. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And and so the question that I want us to try and just answer as we close this morning is how is it then, God? How do you work in and through my limitation? I understand that my limitations, my weaknesses, those frailties, those I can't do it, that you could actually use them to accomplish your purpose. But what is it that you're actually doing in that space? And there's just a few things that I want to point out from this scripture. Because Abram was in that same place. He couldn't accomplish it. He couldn't make it happen in his own strength. And notice how God starts. He says this, hey, Abram, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, when you're in a dark place, it's pretty easy to get afraid, isn't it? Because you can't tell up from down and back from front and where do I go next. And it's just a dark, dark place. You feel a sense of loss of control. But this is something that God said over and over and over to all the great heroes of faith that we love to read about from Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joshua and Peter and Moses. He always was saying to them, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. In fact, God actually uses that phrase 365 times throughout the Bible. I think God's trying to catch our attention or at least give us one for every day of the year. Do not Be afraid. Why do I not need to be afraid? Well, number two, because you're not alone. See, what? look look what it says. It says, do not be afraid, Abram. In other words, God knows your name. 
God shows up not as some distant kind of um, creator, not as some person who has all the power and all the authority and kind of says, hey, Abraham, you know, buck up, little camper. Come on out of your tent. No, no, no. He says, don't be afraid. Abram, don't be afraid. I know your name. And it's so true that so often as we go through those dark seasons, those seasons when we feel limitation and frailty and I can't and I'm weak, it's in those moments that the enemy so often tries to get us to believe that we're alone. I don't know if it's the enemy, the human psyche, there's kind of some mix or magic, you know, in there. But how many of you know that when you go through those seasons that one of the tricks that gets played on you and I is that we, this sense that we're alone. We're the only one going through this. Nobody else understands. And it's so true that, in, that so often in those moments, they're leveraged to try and get us to be isolated and to be alone. And what God shows up in this situation and what he says is, hey, hey, don't be afraid. I know your name and I'm with you even in those dark seasons. I don't think there's any greater promise. I don't think there's anything that could give us any greater comfort that, that there's no one else in those spaces and places that could, could show up and just by the mere fact that he, he's present with us, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to have it all figured out. I don't need to try and figure out, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. No, no, no. I can just rest in his presence. And that's the third thing that we learn from this passage is that God offers us his presence. Look at what he says. Do not be afraid, Abram. And then he says this. I am your shield and great reward. God could have shown up and said, don't be afraid, Abram. I've got, I've got plans. Here's some grace. Here's a little faith. Here's a little dabba dabba do, right? No, God shows up in that moment, and what does God offer him? God offers him himself. Is there any greater gift? Is there anything that could transform the human heart more than the very presence of God? And what we discover in this moment is that God is actually setting up a pattern. This moment in Abram's life is prophetic of something that's going to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he shows up and he says, look what he says. He makes him these promises and he says, I am your shield. In other words, I'm the one that protects you and then I am your great reward. I am the one that provides for you. It's the I am that shows up in that dark moment. And what, there's no greater grace, no greater gift that any single one of us could be offered in this room than the gift of God's presence. We ultimately see this fulfilled in the cross, don't we? We see Jesus leaving the majesty and splendor of heaven, living a life that you and I could never live, will never live, right? And then he willingly goes to the cross and he gives himself so that we can be in his presence. John 15, right before, John 15, Jesus, sorry, gathers all of his disciples to share a meal together, and then they break bread, and they do communion, and, and then he starts teaching them and leaving them with some thoughts. And in John 15, 
He says, and you're probably, if you've been around church and know your Bible, you know it says this. It's the, the main point of what Jesus was trying to help his disciples understand was this, abide in me. And that little word for abide is the Greek word meno, which literally means to abide, to remain, or said another way, to make yourself or make your home in. In other words, Jesus is teaching his disciples, I want you to make your home in my presence. God is not impersonal. God is not distant. God is personal and present with his people. It's always been what marks God's people, is his presence. And Jesus is telling to his disciples and saying to you and I, I want you to be at home. I want you to make your home in my presence presence. So my question to you this morning is how aware are you of God's presence? I know that for myself, oftentimes I'll be in a scenario or facing something, a challenge, and, and if you're like me, I know the first thing that I tend to do, and you're maybe more mature than I am, but I tend to kind of try to figure it all out myself. And God's saying, no, 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 are you aware of my presence with you? St. Augustine said this, he said that our hearts, and it's a, a kind of a misquote, but I'll, let me say it better, just read it, better read it. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that God offers us his presence, offers us himself, right? And yet so often we bypass his presence on our way to try and figure out these things ourselves. And so don't be afraid. God's personally involved. He's not distant, but God actually offers you and I his very presence with us. And the last thing that we learn from this passage of scripture is that the thing then that God is after is our hearts. You know there's a battle going on for your heart. There's all kinds of things that try to capture your affection and your attention. It doesn't take much imagination in the world in which we live to realize that there are all kinds of things that are used to try to distract us and draw us away from God's presence. But Jesus understood that the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And it's why Jesus was always teaching and preaching, going after the heart, because if a person's heart is surrendered to Jesus, if a person's affections and attentions are focused on Jesus, it's in that space and in that place that transformation can begin to take place. It's why we feel so restless when we chase after all of these other things, trying to solve all of the challenges and problems of life. Because you and I have been wired to be in God's presence. And so, as we just close this morning, I'd love you to take a moment just to close your eyes, just to lock yourself in and just asking God's presence, his Holy Spirit, to now just speak personally to you. Because I guarantee you that in your life, in your world, if you're not in a season, you're coming out of a season, and if you're not coming out of a season, you're probably going into a situation or a circumstance that you're gonna feel limits, you're going to feel weakness. You're going to feel, man, I can't. And I'm here to tell you, you're right where God needs you to be because in that space, his strength is made perfect.
but you don't do it in your own strength. He's offering you himself. Ultimately, we see that in Jesus. He's saying, hey, I'm offering you myself so that you can have relationships, so that you can quit trying in your own strength and trying to figure this thing called life out, trying to figure out how to overcome those hurts, those habits, those hang-ups, those things that just seem to keep you trapped. You're weary from trying in your own strength. And there's an invitation. Jesus is inviting you and some of you for the very first time. He's saying, I came for you. I came to rescue you out of that life of trying, 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 trying in your own strength. I came to forgive you of your sin. I came to offer you another way, an alternative way of life that's not based on your good works. It's not based on your ability. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. And it's an invitation that's filled with promise because you don't get to do it in your own strength. You get to rely upon him. And so if that's you this morning, whether you're in the room or you're online this morning, I want to ask you, would you have the courage? Would you have the desire? God, you're stirring. You're sensing something in your heart right now. Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with him. If that's you this morning, would you just slip your hand up to heaven? And just, you're just acknowledging, Jesus, I want that relationship. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to wait just another second. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, this morning, in this moment, you're inviting people. The Lord, to leave a life of trying in their own strength. They're weary and tired. Father, dealing with sin, trying to figure out how to live a good life. But Lord, today, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, who not only went to the cross, but rose from the grave, there is new life. There is forgiveness of sin. Lord Jesus, there is an invitation into a new life, so much so that you actually describe us as new creations, new people, as a result of putting our trust in you. And so, Lord, I pray that your presence would be with everyone that has raised their hand to respond to you today. There's other, others of us in the room this morning, and man, you have a weakness, a limitation. There's just, you've bumped into it. You feel like Abram in that dark place. You're just crowded in. You can't see any way out. And God is here saying, do not be afraid. I'm with you. I'm giving you my presence. Now come out of the tent. It's time to hope. It's time to dream. It's time to put confidence in me. And if that's you this morning and the Holy Spirit's just already been kind of speaking to your heart this morning and just saying, hey, surrender that area to me. Hey, give that over to me right now. If that's you this morning, would you just simply slip your hand up to heaven? I got my hands raised because there's areas of my life that I'm surrendering to Jesus right now. And I'm saying, Lord, I want you to have your way. 
So Lord, you see hearts, you see hands, you see all of us in the room wrestling, struggling. Lord, some of us have been trying in our own strength to overcome areas of sin and temptation. Father, some in the room, Lord Jesus, are just keep bumping into an obstacle or bumping into a hindrance. Lord, I pray, let them not be afraid. Let them experience your presence. And Lord, even in this moment, let there be a fresh wind, a fresh sense of your presence that just fills each heart. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Come on, I'm going to have a stand together.